advertising works, but you have to do it in the style that fits your personality. That's Morris Bart, legendary Louisiana personal injury attorney and legal marketing pioneer. And I never would have thought 40 years ago that after so many years of attorney advertising, the ads that that lawyers are making still suck. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp Video, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. Today, I sat down with Morris Bart to discuss the pivotal decisions he's made in his decades-long career, the motivations driving his iconic advertising strategy, and the lessons he's learned as he grew his law firm into the powerhouse it is today. A lawyer I really respected in New Orleans told me, he said, you know, you better hope this advertising stuff works because your name is mud in New Orleans. You will never get a job anywhere. If the advertising doesn't work, you're going to have to move out of town. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Morris Bart is perhaps the best-known legal advertiser in Louisiana. That's largely because he was the first attorney to advertise in the state and one of the first to do so in the entire country. I asked Morris to elaborate on his decision to start advertising at a time when most in the legal profession viewed it as distasteful and beneath them. So you have to go back uh, to the late 70s, the Bates decision, which allows us to advertise, and I should say allows us to advertise again, because 100 years ago, lawyers commonly advertised. And uh, just a quick aside before I get into it, I had always heard that one of the original advertisers was Abraham Lincoln himself. Now, that was just this urban legend that was floating around law school. But when I got out, I had a friend of mine who was in the historical document business, And I asked him, I said, if you ever come across Abraham Lincoln's ad, buy it for me. So about a year later, he calls me up and he said, you're not going to believe it. I'm in Chicago. I'm at a convention. And somebody has the original Springfield Gazette from March of 1857. And in there is Abraham Lincoln's ad. And so I bought it and I have that ad in a hermetically sealed frame in my office. So we're in very good company with advertising. Then it changed in the 1900s, the beginning of the 1900s. Lawyers, it was considered unethical to advertise. And then you fast forward to 1977, Supreme Court in the Bates decision said it is now ethical for lawyers to advertise. I graduated law school in 1978. I was a young, ambitious, driven lawyer, chomping at the bit, ready to get going. I was working for a small business litigation firm. And then, just as as it is now, it's so damn hard to get business. And I felt that if I could get cases, I could be successful. I could make a name for myself, but I had to get cases. And when the Supreme Court, in their consumer-based decision, allowed lawyers to advertise, I saw that as my ticket. I saw that as something I should embrace, something I should do. I should get the cases, and that would send me on my way. And I started advertising in 1980. And I have never gotten off the train since then. 
Now, at the time, I mean, especially in, in the 1980s, this was still, I think, viewed, I don't know, it was no longer viewed as unethical, but it was certainly viewed with, with a certain degree of stigma in the sense that, you know, especially in the, in the trial lawyer community, that, that great lawyers shouldn't have to advertise, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard for anybody to imagine now the battles as one of the very first pioneers in America that I had to fight. I had to fight my state trial lawyers association who ostracized me. I had to fight the National Trial Lawyers Association, ATLA, it was called, the American Trial Lawyers Association, and now it's become AAJ. Uh, they were vehemently against lawyer advertising. Defense lawyers hated it. Judges hated it. And of course, at the top of that list was a bar association. They really hated it. So my schedule was every day when I came to the office, the first thing I'd do is I'd get the mail sitting in my envelopes on top of my secretary's desk. And I'd flip through all the envelopes to see if there's one from the Bar Association with a complaint against me. Numerous, numerous complaints I had to uh, to battle with our Louisiana Bar Association over advertising. When I expanded to Mississippi, I got involved in major litigation uh, in federal court with the Mississippi State Bar. When I expanded to Alabama, I got in major litigation with the Alabama Bar. Uh, when I expanded to Florida, I was, I'm not there now, but when I was there, didn't get into litigation, but we, we had a lot of hearings with the Florida bar. There was just huge pushback, huge resistance. In kind of a laughable way, the issue was always, does the First Amendment to the Constitution apply in those states? Which, of course, it does. And once I was able to convince the state that I don't have to be licensed in your state and I can still practice there, then they came to accept me. But those battles raged, those raged for 10 or 15 years while I was advertising and attempting to build up my law firm. And uh, after a while, it just became accepted. And now it's kind of a shrug of the shoulders. Everybody goes, oh, yeah, lawyers advertise. It's no big deal. But it's because of the battles. And it wasn't just me. There was other brave soldiers uh, throughout America that paved the way in those early days for what lawyers can do now. Now, for the people listening, I mean, it, inherently, do you believe that attorney advertising as a whole is is ultimately a good thing? Or is this, or is this kind of like the inevitable route that things would have taken? It, it really achieves the purposes that the Supreme Court said back in the early 70s. And that was, it's in the best interest of the public to know about the availability of legal services. So, Perhaps not so much in the realm of auto litigation now, because the airwaves are glutted with lawyers looking for cases. I don't think the public is at a loss uh, as to how to find a lawyer if they've been hurt in a car wreck. But clearly, it's still serving the purposes in mass tort litigation, which my firm is very active in. Anytime there's been a drug that's been recalled, there's a bad drug, contaminated drug, uh, medical device all the different areas of mass tort, I feel we do a huge public service by going on the air and letting people know these are the issues involved in this drug. Otherwise, the drug companies would simply sweep it under the carpet. And, and speaking of advertising, I want to talk about the slogan, right? The one call, that's all. I have to ask, because I've, I've heard this a number of times, who originally came up with this thing? The true story of this is if you go back to the 80s, uh, myself and my friend and agent at the time who lived in New Orleans, Richard Sackett, 
we were creating ads, lawyer ads were one of the very few in the country doing it. It was really my idea. I had the idea one night that uh, I wanted to come up with a new slogan. And the inspiration for it was the, and this was probably before your time, there was an infomercial back in the 80s. It's still on YouTube if you want to look at it. It's hilarious. It's called the Grapefruit 45 Diet. And the theory was you take this pill every night, which is it, it has the essence of grapefruit, which is pectin. And you take that pill at night, and then while you sleep, your body converts all your fat into urine, and you simply pee it out in the morning, and then you lose all your weight. I love that, that infomercial. And this was at a time when infomercials were just coming out, and I was fascinated by it. So I went over to uh, Sackett's house, and I told him, I said, you know, this is what people want. They want something easy. They want something simple. I want to transpose that to law. I want to create a slogan that's as easy as the Grapefruit 45 diet. So Sackett and I start talking, and we talk about, okay, well, how do you get a hold of a lawyer? You call them. And, and then you can see the transition after that. Once we start talking about calling, you know, I'm like, okay, well, what could be easier than just making one call to a lawyer? Maybe one call that does it all. And then we quickly put together one call, that's all. At the time, I thought it was going to be kind of the slogan du jour. You know, I was going to use that maybe for a year or so back in the 80s. But kind of to, uh, to my amazement, here I am in 2020 still using the slogan, and uh, there's numerous lawyers all over the country that uh, use one call and have been very successful with it. So, you know what? I'm happy for them and happy for myself and happy that the uh, slogan got legs and has worked for everybody all these years. Now, I'm sure there's several things that you attribute to the growth of the firm, but how important was that slogan? Because I know you, you, you get repeated in virtually every commercial, you know, throughout, you know, just over the years. How important do you actually think it was? I'm not as big on slogans as other lawyers are, even though I'm very identified with one call, that's all. It goes more into branding. Rather than worrying so much about what your slogan is, it's a matter of just coming up with a slogan that speaks to you and speaks to your identity. And then you stick with that slogan and you repeat it over and over and over again, it becomes identified with you. So one call, that's all is what I am now branded with. So obviously, it's an extremely important slogan to me and all of my markets, because when you say that, people instantly know that's Morris Bart. But the slogan, one call, that's all, in and of itself, it's not like that's an earth-shattering slogan. I mean, it's a catchy little slogan. But what's more important is that I have marketed the hell out of that for many decades now, so it's branded with me. Now, you know, you fast forward several years and obviously you become so well known, even, even in Louisiana, that, you know, I saw a few years ago that there was a woman who threw like a Morris Bart themed birthday party for her son. And this, this was something that got picked up in the Wall Street Journal and the Huffington Post, even, you know, featured on like Jimmy Kimmel. Has this, I mean, just over the years, has it surprised you the level of just branding and brand recognition? I think I've been very fortunate that in New Orleans, they love their local celebrities. So, in addition to achieving success, which a lot of lawyers do, I mean, pretty much every big city in America now has a Morris Bart in there. But in addition to being the brand, in addition to being the lawyer that's known in New Orleans, 
I've achieved this celebrity status where the people of New Orleans have really embraced me and, and treat me as a true local celebrity. So I'm very proud of that. I'm very grateful for it. I'm very glad I live in New Orleans. But I have 17 offices now throughout Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama. And uh, I have a pretty high level of recognition in all those cities. But in New Orleans in particular, I'm very fortunate that I've achieved a, a rare, rarefied air. And I'm very grateful for that. Now, I had a conversation the other day with Ross Salino, who'd mentioned that he received an incredible piece of advice from you years ago, where essentially you mentioned that in order for him to dominate his market, that he should develop his TV budget that should be, you know, the spend and frequency should be double of any of his competitors. Right. Yeah. And, and, and he definitely took that advice to heart. Yeah. It feels good when I hear about someone that listened to me many years ago, took the advice and, and was very successful. Do you still believe that's the way to go? So it's essentially the double up spend and frequency? If you're not going to be a top spender in your market, uh, then it's going to be difficult to achieve a high level of success. There was a time many, many years ago where you could go into a market, you could have a moderate television budget and really experience a high level of success. Every market in America now is glutted with lawyer advertising. So you can't really break open new ground, all you can do is just try and wedge a space for yourself in that market. There's opportunities that can be found, but it's going to take buckets of money now. In your major markets, millions of dollars every year. Many law firm owners struggle with knowing where and how much they should invest in their firms. Is there a best practices approach or is it a sixth sense? I wanted to hear what Morris thinks. When you're young, uh, you just take these gambles. You know, it's kind of an all-in decision. I was a young lawyer. I was aggressive. I was motivated. I wanted to make a name for myself. I just needed to get clients. And I saw advertising as the way to get clients. I remember at the time, a lawyer I really respected in New Orleans told me, he said, you know, you better hope this advertising stuff works because your name is mud in New Orleans. You will never get a job anywhere. If the advertising doesn't work, you're going to have to move out of town. And although that worried me, I was willing to do it because I was all in. I was saying, you know, I see this as a future. I'm going to gamble. I think it's going to work, but I'm going to risk everything I have to see if this is going to work. And of course, now it worked. And, and I'm, I'm very proud of the success. But uh, it takes that sort of commitment. You can't do a half-assed commitment. A lot of young lawyers now have a huge advantage I didn't have, which is digital. I mean, digital allows an attorney to get on the air and, and with uh, a, a lot of hard work, if you have limited financial resources, to uh, blog and have an active social media presence, uh, you, can, you can have a successful practice and avoid the multi-million dollar commitment it takes to go on television. And speaking of digital, I mean, what have been some of the, you know, the pivots you've made as it relates to either messaging or even the platforms that you use to market the firm today? You know, the be-all, end-all is Google. Everything else is just crumbs that fall off the table. So uh, the mastery of Google is very difficult, you know, on the uh, organic side, on the paid side. And now they have Google Local, which is going to dominate the whole digital marketplace. And so being able to have that, that presence is very tough. You have Yahoo, you have uh, the social media presence, Instagram, Twitter, uh, I think all of them are relevant, and we play all of the different platforms. 
but uh, the most effective I've found is Google. And to come off marketing for a minute, I, you know, I know you mentioned that you know you can't be half committed. So I recall a story that you right out of law school you started your own firm. So like, you know, many lawyers I think could have worked somewhere else, but you decided you know just to go all in very early on. Yeah, not completely true. I mean, right out of law school, I went to work at a small business litigation firm, and I did that my first year out of law school, and then I quit and I went on my own and started. Well, at that time we called it legal clinics. You know, lawyers are steeped in precedent. You know, we're, we're afraid to do anything that's outside of the box. Maybe not so much now, but back then we were very afraid to do it. So when the Supreme Court decided the Bates decision, in that decision, the lawyers had set up what they coined a legal clinic. And so all of us back then believed that if we set up a legal clinic, that was kosher. If we did something else, it might not work. So uh, I quit the firm on good terms that I was working with went on my own and started something I called Orleans Legal Clinic. And I used to advertise that in the newspaper, which hard to believe, but a little ad in the newspaper back then and my phone would ring off the hook. So it's just, you know, it's, it's come a long way, but nobody advertised back then. Were you always very entrepreneurial? I would say so. I mean, I've, I've been lucky that uh, I, I have a good natural ability for marketing and PR. And that's something I probably got from my father who had good bones when it came to marketing and PR. That was kind of his forte. And I guess I inherited that uh, and had the genetic predisposition for it. But uh, I love the law too. And I love being a lawyer. And for many years, I not only did the marketing for the firm, but I did all the jury trials in the firm, all the major cases in the firm I handled. And for probably my first 10 to 15 years of practice, I was the top trial lawyer in the firm. And Morris, if you look back over the last, let's say, 40 years, what have been some of the decisions that you've made that you believe had the greatest impact on your success and the success of the firm? The first one was to commit to advertising and to do it in a style I was comfortable with. And if there's any one major take-home point that I would like to make to anyone listening to this, it's simply this. Advertising works, but you have to do it in the style that fits your personality. And uh, that's a mistake most people make. Uh, you know, I look at the ads on television now, and 90% of them are terrible. And I never would have thought 40 years ago that after so many years of attorney advertising, that the, the whole industry, the ads that, that lawyers are making still suck. I thought that by now they would be far superior. So you have ads that are brash, and guess what? They work. You have ads that are very subtle, and yes, they work. So you've got to do what works for you. Look, according to Law 360, which ranked uh, the law firms, the largest uh, plaintiff firm in America is John Morgan's firm. Uh, he has very kind of uh, staid type ads, very serious, very professional, very straightforward. Uh, they also rank me as the number two largest injury firm in America. Uh, we're up over 100 lawyers, a staff of 300, 17 offices across these three states. You know, we got a very large footprint now. Uh, my ads are very different than John Morgan's. They're not brash in your face. They're, they're more aggressive than his. But mine work too, although he's got the bigger, more successful firm by far. 
So what's the takeaway point? The takeaway point is simply that John's ads are very effective for him. They fit his personality. My ads are very effective for me. They fit my personality. Uh, And there's lots of different styles out there. So if you're committed to advertising, I think you have to find the style that works for you. That would be one of my major points I would hope to make to everybody listening today. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people that are listening that are probably thinking, well, right place at the right time, this person you know, invested in advertising and doubled down, but there were clearly other factors at play that also and other decisions that you made that contributed to the success of the firm. It wasn't just simply in investing in advertising, right? No, good point. And uh, actually, that's one of the reasons I've expanded to all these different cities, because that's a criticism I used to hear. At first, I used to hear advertising doesn't work. And then when I showed it worked, I would hear from, well, you were just a lucky son of a bitch because you were at the right place at the right time and uh, nobody was competing with you, but you couldn't do it today. So I thought, okay, well, screw you. And then I would expand to their cities to show them that it's more than just advertising, that I have a certain technique that makes me successful. Let me put it to you this way. I'll give you this example. You know, New Year's Eve, everybody goes out and gets drunk. And while they're drunk, they say, you know what? Next year, I'm going to get in shape. I'm going to be in kick-ass shape. And in the month of January, all the fitness clubs, all the gyms are packed to the brim. And everybody works out in January. But by February, the gyms are pretty much empty again, particularly here in New Orleans, because that's when Mardi Gras starts. So forget it. Once Mardi Gras starts, everybody's out of the gyms. And so next year, they're back in the same position. There are a few people that stay committed and work out every day, all year long. And by next year, by next New Year's Eve, they're like, wow, I did it. I am buffed. I'm in great shape. I stuck with it. I had perseverance. I had the commitment. And now I achieved what I wanted to achieve. It's the same way with law. You know, it's not a one-month deal. It's a 12-month deal. If you have that same perseverance, if you have that same commitment, if you have that goal and just like you have got to work out every day all year to achieve your goals by next new year, if you're willing to do the same thing, if you're willing to bust your ass and work seven days a week if that's what it takes because you want to achieve your goal and you want to achieve the success, you will achieve it. It's as easy as that. You will achieve it. But you got to have the commitment and most people fall apart when it comes to long-term commitment, but that's what it takes. What was driving you throughout that entire process? Like what, what was differentiating you from, let's say other, you know, law firm owners that your results were clearly very different from theirs. I think number one, I love being a lawyer. You know, I, I love people. And which is, if you don't love people, you shouldn't advertise. If you don't like people stopping you on the street or even making fun of you, You know, like I have people that will fall down in front of me. Oh, I hurt my back. I hurt my back. I laugh along with them. If you don't love people, if you don't love attention, if you're you're not somewhat of a ham, uh, if you don't want to be in the spotlight, then this business of advertising, it's not for you. You're better off not doing it. But uh, if you like it, if that appeals to you, I love people. I love being a lawyer. Initially, I did it because loving being a lawyer, loving people, and wanting to be successful and make a lot of money. After a period of time, the money became insignificant because I'd achieved my dreams financially. But then I realized I love competition. 
I love doing the marketing and PR. It's something I feel I'm very good at. I've also built up a very significant firm, and I have lots of lawyers that have worked for me for decades, and I feel a responsibility to keep them successful so they can feed their family. I mean, look, when you have 300 people working for you, and those people feed their families based on your ideas and what you do to market yourself, it's a pretty cool but yet awesome responsibility. Growing from a solo practitioner into a national powerhouse comes with its own set of challenges. I wanted to know what were some of the mistakes Morris made along the way and what did he learn from them? Managing people is the hardest thing to do. And uh, sometimes people you have your highest hopes and expectations for disappoint you. And other times, ones that you really don't expect much out of do very good. So I think you have to become an expert in human relations. You have to be an expert at trying to spot the potential of people. And then you have to have tough enough skin where somebody that doesn't do well, you you separate from them. You know, you don't keep mediocre people in your operation. I mean, I guess the bane of my existence has been having mediocre people in the operation. I mean, look, if you look at it as a bell-shaped curve, on one end of the curve is the A people, A-plus people. Okay, well, you know what to do with them. You want to treat them great and keep them forever. At the other end of the bell-shaped curve are the people who would get Ds and Fs. Well, that's easy. You know what to do with them. You get rid of them. But in the middle, those are all your people that are ranked C, C plus, maybe even a B minus, but let's say C or C plus. And you look at them and you go, they got strong points. They got weak points. What do we do? I try to recognize potential. And if I have a C player that I can somehow give them duties or tasks or responsibilities that they can perform at a B level, I keep them. But if that C player starts trending towards a D, then you got to get rid of them. It's as easy as that. Now, there's going to be people that are listening to this, and they and we all know who the, who those people are in our organizations, right? So they're not terrible, right? It's not that it, it's obvious you should let them go, but they're not great, and inevitably they will hold the organization back. Yet most firm owners, even after hearing what you just said, will probably do nothing. Why do you think that is? Well, because, look, you know, you don't want to hurt people. You like people. You like the people that are working for you. And I'm not saying you should get rid of your C players. You just have to make sure that they're bringing value to you. And you got to look at their strengths and weaknesses. For instance, I have a lawyer working for me. He is excellent with people skills. If we have a client come in that's irate about something, no matter who's handling the case, We send him to go talk to that person, and they absolutely love him. But as far as his technical skills of working on the files, his follow-through, he doesn't have that. When we audit his files and look at it, there's numerous steps that have been missed. Uh, He sometimes let files drag for months and months, and that's obviously a negative. So we've restructured his job so he's primarily dealing with people as opposed to working up files. Or when he is working up files, I'll put him with a lawyer that doesn't have the personal skills but loves just sitting there going through files all day and can reinforce what he does. And how have you seen, just since the inception of the firm, how have you seen the firm and even your leadership evolve just basically since the establishment? 
The advantage I have with a large firm is that you can build a management team in your image. And so where before I had to be a renaissance man, I had to be able to do the marketing, try the cases, manage people, give out raises, on and on and on. And so now I have an HR department, I have an IT department, I have administrators, I have consultants. And so I have a whole team that can advise me, although the buck still stops with me. So I think my decisions now are more uniform. They make more sense because I'm able to tap into experts in their field. You know, oftentimes we as lawyers, particularly if we start being successful, we think we're an expert at everything, not only in handling cases, but we're an expert at marketing, we're an expert at human resources. And that's not really true. There are people out there that have an expertise in those areas that can give you very good, sound advice. And then it's up to you whether you act on that advice or not. This is something that's come up frequently in a lot of the successful leaders that I've spoken with on this podcast. But there's something crucial that you mentioned earlier on when, you know, as the firm was growing and you were driving more revenue, that you made the decision and really commitment to reinvest that back into the firm. Whereas you see a lot of firm owners, you know, they land a big case and they buy a nice home or they buy a nice car. But instead, it seemed like you were always very much focused on the future. Yeah, I think that's important to do. I mean, you you have to have a sustaining source of business. I mean, look, I'm all for buying rewards for yourself because that's the juice that keeps you motivated. So you're not going to hear from me about leading a very austere type life. You know, what we do as plaintiff lawyers, it's like going to the craps table. It's risk reward. There's a lot of gamble involved. If you take the gamble, you know, buy yourself rewards. But uh, first, you got to look at your business. You know, look, I've, I've owned just about every car you can own. I have multiple homes now all across the U.S., uh, and I'm still buying shit. I mean, you know, it's, it's just in my blood. I just like doing that. But uh, you want to make sure, particularly in a hyper-competitive marketplace like we are, that the more you seed your practice, the more you're going to get back in return. So you wouldn't want to, like, go out and and buy a car for a couple hundred thousand dollars when you don't have an adequate advertising budget. But if you have an adequate advertising budget and you foresee that in the months or the year or so ahead that you're doing really good and you want to get that car because you just worked your ass off for three months preparing for trial and just settled that case for a multi-million dollar amount, then hell yeah, you go buy the car and you enjoy it. I know you mentioned earlier that the buck stops you know, with the leader, but what are some of the decisions or even perhaps aspects of the business that you, you feel that you'll never let go of? I'll never let go of marketing. Uh, marketing is something that I just have a knack for. Uh, I'm still intimately involved with all of the marketing, so much so it would probably shock you. I actually do the, uh, the media buys myself. I have someone that places it for me. But uh, yeah, I will pick out the shows. I pick out uh, whether I'm going to spot buy or do rotators, uh, the frequency of the ads, the traffic. All of that comes directly from me for every one of the markets we're in. I still control all of that. I still create the ads. I don't produce the ads. Obviously, I don't know how to set the lens on a camera or do 
block lighting or anything like that. And I don't care to learn that. But I still have lots of creative ideas that I'm constantly coming out with. And uh, I do those, which all my competitors still copy, but that's fine. The way I figured everybody can jump on the wagon as long as I'm still driving. That's right. I, I like that. I like creating. I like doing ads. Uh, I love the, the digital aspect because it's this vast, uncontrollable territory. I almost look at digital like trying to squeeze a water balloon. You can't get it in your hands and squeeze it and contain it all. You squeeze one area, it pops out in another area. So uh, it's a tremendous uh, intellectual and creative challenge to understand digital and its different aspects and permeations of it and how it works. And, and Google is always up in the bar as far as uh, what you have to do to get good organic placement. So it's a good challenge, but yet it reaps big rewards. And after, you know, nearly 40 years of, of doing this, it seems like you're more energized than ever. What, what's driving you today? I guess I enjoy it. I wish I could give you a a better answer than that, but uh, but yeah, I enjoy it. I also, and this is a, another, I guess, another takeaway point I would make that's very important. Probably what's contributed most to my longevity is having a good balance in my life. And for everybody, it's different. I find if I work all the time, I get stressed out. If I take too much time off, I get bored. So, I got to find the right balance for me. You know, I have a home in Aspen. I spend a lot of time up there. I'm an avid skier, I hike, I bike. Now getting into golf for the first time in my life. I haven't really done that before, but I have so many friends doing it that, you know, I'm going to start taking that up too. I've got to have that balance. And for everybody, it's different. And of course, my kids are grown. But when I had young kids, that was a very important aspect of my life is to make sure I had time for my kids. Uh, I had three girls, so I was there for every dance recital, every sporting event. I made sure that no matter how much I was working, I took time out for that. And so I think now I reap the benefit that the time I've taken off to go skiing, you know, it's kind of like the, the work hard, play hard routine. When I would play, I'd play hard. When I'd work, I'd work hard. That's the balance that works for me. And to me, that's the key to a successful life is balance. It's not about making a lot of money and getting out and then not doing anything. Uh, or it's not about working your ass off and dying in your office chair. It's about balancing the two throughout your whole life and shifting the balance depending on what's going on in your life. But I hope to forever keep a balance of work, family, and fitness in my life as long as I can. And especially with the early years, I'm wondering, like, how did you balance that? Because, you know, between your family, your children, you know, growing this firm and, and so on, like, essentially, how were you able to juggle all those? Well, you got to be very rigid with your schedule. Uh, as an example, back then when my kids were young, I decided every month, the month of July, I'm going to take off the entire month and go to Aspen. And to, to do that, what I would do is in December, now we're going way back. Remember, this is before you had cell phones and computers. So in December, you would get your calendar for the next year, a little uh, kind of loose, loose binder of a calendar, 
monthly minder is the one I used to use. And uh, what I would do when I got that calendar for the next year, when I got it in December, I would immediately turn to the month of July and draw a line through the entire month, which of course was no problem in January. But then as May and June would come along, there would be a huge push because I was actively doing litigation. There's a huge push where judges would want to set motions, depositions would be set. And I turn to my account and go, look, I'm sorry, I'm going to be out of town that day. I wouldn't say the whole month because then they'd say, well, screw you. We're going to set it anyway. I just say that day I'm going to be on a family vacation. And so I would never set anything the month of July. But it takes that sort of effort. You know, it takes a lot of planning. With planning, you can do it. So, uh, you know, like with my kids, if I had a dance recital my daughter had that afternoon, uh, you know, I might go to work at seven o'clock that morning. You know, I might eat a sandwich at my desk and not go out to lunch that day. If I had a lunch out, I'd cancel the lunch. I mean, look, we all have the same amount of time in the day. It's just a matter of you prioritizing. And I decided early on there's three things that are important in my life. Work, I wanted to be very successful, build up a big firm. Family, you know, I had a wife, I had three daughters. I wanted to be there and experience the joy and the love of raising my kids because believe me, that time goes very, very fast. And number three was fitness. Fitness is very important to me. To this day, I work out every single day. I made that a priority to me. I don't care what time I had to do it. Every single day I was going to work out. It's almost like brushing my teeth. If I was working out from six to seven in the morning, then six to seven in the morning, I'm working out and nobody better call me or ask me to do anything else. And speaking of daily routine, Morris, do you have a, a daily routine or just specific consistent habits that set you up for success? I'd say I have both. I'm a big believer when it comes to work of grouping activities, meaning if I'm going to do email or paperwork, I want to do that for maybe an hour at a time. But I usually do that at a set hour each time. If I'm going to have meetings. So, for example, I might, uh, let's say, from 9 to 10. And it varies. I usually get to the office now about 8.30 in the morning. But uh, let's say from 8.30 to about 9.30 or so, I'll do email. I'll do paperwork. Then from about uh, 9.30 to 11, I'll have staff meetings. Uh, then maybe from 11 to 12, I might circulate around the office, meet people, have informal in the hallway type discussions, which is invaluable for me getting the pulse of the firm and what's going on. Maybe have lunch after that, you know, maybe schedule more meetings from one to two. I mean, each day I kind of group it. So if I'm doing phone calls, I do all my phone calls at one time. If I'm doing emails, I do all my emails at one time. The worst thing you can do is throughout the day, you know, every time your, your iPhone goes off, you constantly look at an email and do it. You just group it. I mean, take 30 minutes in the morning, 30 minutes in the afternoon, 30 minutes before you leave, do your emails. And other than that, you don't look at it. Same with meetings and everything else. And let's talk about the future. I mean, I know that over the years, you've seen the legal industry evolve in, in many different ways. Where do you believe things are going? You know, it's so hard to project what's going to happen because I've had so many people tell me that the auto injury business is dead. Don't do it. When I was in law school, I was working for a personal injury lawyer. And at that time, 
we thought no-fault insurance was going to take over America based on Canada. Canada had enacted no-fault. And so in law school, they were teaching us the Canadian no-fault plans because this was going to take over America and there's going to be no more auto accident litigation. Uh, Hard to believe that 40 years later, everyone's still doing it and it's probably bigger than it ever was. I, I think it's here to stay. I think it's here to stay. I think anybody that wants to do auto injury work should do it without hesitation. It's going to be here. It's not going anywhere. Uh, trust that insurance companies will never pay people full value, that they're always going to try to lowball them. And as long as you have insurance companies that lowball people, there will be a, a big demand for lawyers. And Morris, as we come to a close, this being the Game Changing Attorney podcast, what does being a game changer mean to you? I think being a game changer means that you love what you're doing, both as a lawyer and a marketer. Not, not. I want to get lawyers away from thinking, oh, I'm just going to market and be a success, but law sucks. I don't want to do it. If you have that attitude, don't be a lawyer. Think you got to love what you do. You got to love people and you have to have a full-time long-term commitment. You know, you got to be committed. If you're not committed, it's not going to happen. I want to give a huge thanks to Morris Bart for taking the time to speak with us today. You know, what particularly resonated for me was when Morris mentioned that in order to see a significant return on advertising, you must commit to it for the long haul. And you must love people and be able to laugh at yourself every once in a while to not only survive, but to thrive. You've been listening to the Game Changing Attorney Podcast with me, Michael Mogul. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could share the podcast with at least one other ambitious law firm owner who you believe would benefit. And you know what? Maybe more than one. For more information on our interview with Morris Bart, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit GameChangingAttorney.com. And join us next time when we'll be speaking to best-selling author, renowned speaker, CEO of seven privately held companies and real estate mogul, Grant Cardone. We're going to talk about the 10X mindset and what it means to go big or go bigger. Build a fire so hot, so big, so enormous that people from all over the world, regardless of who you are, your religion, your race, your age, your sex, they're like, I got to go sit by that damn fire. That's next time on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Oh, 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 oh,